This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The narrow conception of welfare in the United States focuses almost exclusively on raising incomes with cash benefits and other programs. But spending some time on how government red tape raises the cost of living for low-income families could provide some dramatic benefits for the poor without adding to tax burdens. Ryan Bourne is author of a new Cato paper, The Cost of Living with Government, out today. Uh, The main point that I'm trying to make in this paper is though liberals and conservatives have different ideas about what causes poverty and some of the underlying factors uh, that mean some people remain in poverty, there appears to be somewhat of a consensus uh, in terms of what we do to try to alleviate it. And you've just alluded to that. Uh, you know, policies attempt to raise the uh, the incomes of the poor directly through things like cash transfers, tax breaks, minimum wage laws, uh, and the like, or try to raise the poor's disposable income indirectly by shifting expenditure on goods and services uh, to taxpayers through programs such as Medicaid, for example. Now, um, that can alleviate poverty. Clearly, if you give people uh, money, or you reduce their, uh, the amount that they have to spend on certain goods and services, that, that does help alleviate direct financial hardship. And there's some good evidence of that. We've seen over the years, if you account for federal cash benefits, tax credits and benefits in kind, a big decline in the poverty rate overall over the last few decades. And recent work has suggested that almost all of the major spending programs help reduce measured poverty uh, substantially for some groups. My argument here, though, is that this overwhelming focus on this income-based approach to poverty has really left a huge blind spot for us, which is that there are lots of interventions at all levels of government, federal, state and local, that currently raise the cost of living for the poor pretty substantially by raising prices for basic goods and services. And by ignoring that, what we're doing is raising the living costs of the poor, which is then leading the, to the political demands and the necessity to, to intervene and provide extensive transfers. And, uh, you know, we get the demands for minimum wage laws as well. So rather than kind of correcting for some of the existing mistakes that we're making when it comes to living costs, I prefer us to adopt a first do no harm approach uh, to poverty um, and undertake market reforms in all of these areas. Uh, in basic goods and services. So one of the things that you uh, point to as, uh, you know, you you lay out here the how much various income groups and how much very various groups spend on the basics of life, that's, you know, food, shelter, transportation, utilities, healthcare, things like that. And uh, across these categories, the, the one that really jumps out at me uh, is just basic shelter, and wealthier people obviously spend a lower fraction of their income on shelter. So what what policies would you propose that would alleviate that uh, that you know incredible share of income that low income people spend on housing? Yeah, well, the poorest twenty percent of households by income spend um, on average just directly on shelter. So that's housing costs, you know, so so rent or mortgage payments or the like. Um, over twenty five percent of their total spending is dedicated to that. So it's a huge amount, as you say. Now it depends on on where you live, the effects of policies on this. But there's a huge economic literature out there which suggests that land use planning, zoning, and, and growth boundary laws 
have significant uplifts on house prices and housing costs more broadly in many areas, particularly metropolitan, uh, certain metropolitan cities. Uh, economists have tend to look, try to assess this in two ways. One is to compare the price of housing to marginal building costs, because we ima would imagine that if land was readily available and markets were competitive, that prices would equal marginal cost in line with economic theory. And in certain areas, there's a huge gap between price and marginal cost. So in DC, for example, it's been estimated around 20% that gap. In certain Californian cities, it's much greater still. And over the last 20 years or so, there's been a huge increase in the amount of zoning and land use regulation across the country. So that's a hugely significant amount. And uh, depending on where you live in the country, that, that kind of regulatory tax that we're talking about could be anywhere between $0 up to about $2,000 for the, the, the poorest quintile, given how much they spend on housing. So that's a really big impact. When you're talking about a group that over the course of the year, on average, spends about $25,000, uh, just over $25,000, a potential $2,000 saving from moving towards a competitive housing market is a pretty big impact. You're talking about changes that would have to be made at at local level for the most part, right? For some of these issues, yeah. Other other But for housing specifically, that that's overwhelmingly a local or state regulatory system. That's right, yeah. All right, so with respect to some of these other things, I mean just like clothing, for example, you know, where have we seen federal policy in particular that has, has raised the cost of the, the that basic material need that people have? Well, this was an extraordinary one when I started looking at it because I didn't realize the full implications and just how regressive this was. But currently, the, the US imposes pretty stringent tariffs on imported clothing and footwear. If you look, overall tariff revenue in 2017 was just over $33 billion, but $14 billion of that came from tariffs on uh, apparel and footwear alone. So whereas the effect, average effective tariff rate for all imported goods is about 1.4%. I calculated that rates for, for clothing and footwear are about close to 14% and over 11% respectively. So this is a hugely, um, a, a huge uh, protectionist burden against the importation of these goods. Now, actually, clothing uh, tariffs and footwear tariffs are doubly regressive because not only do the poor spend a disproportionate amount on clothing and footwear, which means that for any given level of tariff, we'd expect them to be more aggressive, um, but also items of clothing that tend to be kind of cheaper or what some people might uh, describe as lower quality tend to face higher tariffs as well, which is just extraordinary. If you look at uh, shirts, for example, men's silk shirts, uh, if the US hasn't got a trade deal with a country that it's importing silk shirts from, those, uh, those shirts would face a tariff of 0.9%. For cotton shirts, it's close to 20%. And for cheaper polyester shirts, it's 32%. So we have this double regressive effect when it comes to um, imports of, of clothing and footwear. And I is, that, is that random or is that just, uh, is that calculated? Why, why is that the case? 
Well, part, part of the reason why that's the case is um, that the, the US te- textile industry insists on preserving these tariffs as leverage to compel uh, foreign clothes producers to purchase their inputs. And when the, the US government negotiates uh, preferential access to markets, um, it's it's kind of conditioned on the use of those textiles. So it's a pure protectionist thing for uh, an industry uh, vertically related to the clothing industry in itself. But it has a very, very big regressive effect. I, I calculate that uh, for the average household in the poorest quintile, these tariffs alone, just on clothing and footwear, um, raise prices by about ninety-two dollars, uh, uh, given how much uh, poorer households spend. For single-parent households, of course, that can uh, broadens the spectrum of income. But for single-parent households, that average is two hundred and four dollars a year. So again, you know, in the grand scheme of things, ninety-two dollars, two hundred and four dollars might not sound a great deal. But when you add up all of these different policies across all of these areas, housing, childcare, food, transport, um, clothing and footwear, and the effects of occupational uh, licensing laws, when you add that all up, it adds it adds up to a significant amount, anywhere between about $800 a year to, to $3,500 a year, which could have a significant impact on the, the living standards of poor households. Yeah. One of the things that you, uh, a table you put together based on uh, Ed Gresser's work, uh, a, the products, luxury goods, medium end goods, low end goods, uh, the tariff is on uh, 8.5% on men's leather dress shoes. Mm-hmm. 20% on trail running shoes and 48% on th- uh, sneakers that are $3 and and less. Yeah, it's just extraordinary and and some of this stuff isn't uh purely just related to uh, clothing and footwear either. There's some examples in in other types of goods handbags, necklaces and blankets, we we kind of see the same effect, but I didn't go into those. What I was really trying to do in this paper is is look at the ways that governments, as I say, at the federal level, state level and local level, raise the cost of very, very basic goods and services that everybody would consider uh, were necessities. Uh, so shelter, childcare, food, transport, uh, clothing and footwear. But you could broaden this out um, significantly. You know, you could apply this similar reasoning uh, to healthcare, similar reasoning to um, utilities regulation as well. I was... Um, trying to be as cautious as possible in my estimates because I, I know that this this kind of work comes in for, for sharp criticism and it's always best to err on the side of caution, not over-egg your case, uh, but also to avoid subjective judgments about um, balancing uh, price effects against different concerns. I tried to focus exclusively on areas where I thought the interventions were both uh, regressive um, in terms of their price effects, but also reduced overall economic efficiency. So, you know, there's a strong economic case uh, for free trade against protectionism in, in clothing and footwear. And then it's an argument that one could make irrespective of, of how significant these pricing effects were. So I was trying to, to do stuff that al- almost provides the double dividend of not just lowering prices for poor consumers, but also uh, driving us towards a more efficient economy. You also talk uh, briefly about occupational licensing, and at least within my household, we think about occupational licensing as it affects people who want to provide services, but we don't typically think about occupational licensing in terms of the costs that they impose on the average household in terms Mm -hmm. of higher prices and keeping uh, competitors out, and in particular, 
Uh, childcare is one of those areas where licensing uh, makes childcare so much more expensive for people. Yeah, well, you'd imagine that childcare might be pretty expensive anyway, even in a free market. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's almost displays the characteristics of a luxury good. It's something that you want more as you get richer. There's a strong correlation between uh, the income of states and and the the, the price of childcare, which su- is suggestive. Um, of that, and you know, it's somebody taking care of something that that most parents tend to value pretty highly. So there are good reasons why we might expect it to be relatively expensive as a labour-intensive service. That said, there's a huge um, literature out there which shows that uh, caregiver regulations and regulations around staff-to-child ratios really do have a big uplift on prices. Um, there's some evidence that if you make the staff-child ratio more stringent such that um, you reduce the number of children that each staff member is allowed to care for by one, that can raise prices of childcare by anywhere between 9 and, and 20% because you lower the amount of, the, of revenue that each uh, staff member uh, is able to be linked to. Um, so, so you look at this thing across the board, and you add onto that the um, the costs related to uh, if you increase the um, qualification requirements for for, for child carers as well. All of these things restrict the supply of available childcare, and most of the evidence actually suggests that this almost entirely occurs in poorer areas. So the more um, regulations we impose, or the tighter the regulations, the fewer childcare centres in poor areas. Now that not only raises the the price of childcare for poor households and makes it... Um, more difficult for them to to access childcare, but it also has the doubly negative effect of making it more difficult then for uh, working class parents to actually move into the labour force. So with almost all of these areas, um, you have the direct effect on prices, which obviously makes people financially worse off. They have to pay more for a given service, but also affects the economy more broadly in that it reduces their ability to... um, to move into the labour market, uh, to work more, to find better jobs, to find better job matching. Um, so, so it has a doubly negative effect. Um, I've tried to just tot up the direct effect, the effect on prices. But one of the things I say in the conclusion of the paper is that we'd expect the economic effect to be much broader because of those consequences. Even without any uh, substantial changes to you know, labor market interventions like minimum wages and these uh, living wage campaigns and things like that. This is the kind of thing that could just simply be adopted without uh, necessarily tearing down those kinds of uh, interventions that we already have. That's right. I don't think you have to believe that um, existing anti-poverty programs have failed in order to acknowledge that some of them can have unintended consequences if you take them too far, particularly in relation to the minimum wage, um, that we've got a, a big fiscal deficit already, which is projected to rise, and that limits the scope, unless you're really willing to raise taxes significantly, which would have growth retarding effects. And also that there could be you know, diminishing returns from uh, keeping going on the on on the same kind of paradigm that we're on today now a cost-based agenda um, to reduce the cost of living i would argue um the, you know the focus is on removing these damaging government interventions um the beauty of it is it wouldn't require additional government spending in fact by making essential goods cheaper 
It might even reduce spending levels by lowering the political demands for redistributive transfers. Um, and if delivered through reforms to the type of policies I'm talking about, you'd also expect it to increase economic efficiency, raise GDP and market obtained income. So it'd have a doubly beneficial effect, as I've, I've discussed. And, and one more thing on this. I mean, a beneficial side effect of all of that, if markets were seen to be providing basic goods and services that people needed at low costs, then we might get actually a bit of restored faith in the market economy uh, to deliver affordable goods. And that could have the, the positive impact of resulting in a political environment actually much more conducive to pro-growth reforms in other areas. So what I'm really trying to do here is say we've done lots of research and um, libertarian-leaning organisations have done lots of research over the years on all of these areas. But what we haven't done is put them all together and say if we actually engage systematically in doing these things at all levels of government, across these basic goods and services, we could fundamentally lower the cost of living for poorer people. And that actually might help take down some of the demands for some of the extreme uh, redistributive programs that are being called for, all these hugely risky labour market interventions in the form of things like job guarantees. Ryan Bourne occupies the Scharf Chair in the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts. And if you think about it, say, Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>